According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to the word of God this morning as we get started to Matthew 14. You actually need to be in Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9, and John 6 all simultaneously. Good luck with that. Unless you're sitting there with a laptop and have uh, Logos Bible software running. Paper Bibles do not uh, lend themselves to uh, being open to multiple pages. You can use your finger or use uh, bubblegum wrappers or something to try to mark your place. We'll use Matthew 14. We'll probably end up using Mark 6, actually, as our basic text. That's the longest development. And then... um, We'll supplement with the other scriptures as needed when we get through the outline. This is the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks, actually, because we had last week off. I was in the Schaefer Conference in Houston, so we missed last week. It's been two weeks since we've been together. So in case uh, you've lost track of what we were dealing with, we better uh, recap right from, the, right from the top. Before we do any of that, though, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we are equipped with the Holy Spirit, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the privilege and blessing that it is to assemble together. And most of all, Father, we do thank you for a body of believers that are serious about studying the word, that are committed to uh, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I thank you that uh, that such is our priority here at this lampstand. And, and uh, Father, we just rejoice to know that you are faithful to provide exceeding abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. Father, we look to you to continue to meet the needs of this ministry with the uh, the multitude of visitors that you are sending and continue to send our way, uh, men that are training for ministry and uh, men that are not, believers that are simply hungry for teaching and are thankful to have found it. Father, we look to you to provide every need. You know the need. You know uh, the provision for that need. And we uh, can be confident that your faithfulness will take us forward every step of the way. Now, Father, this morning as we study the living and abiding truth, we pray that you would set aside distractions, allow for us to have maximum concentration. We might take in the word of God that's able to save our souls. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's take it from the top then. The setting for this episode is the Passover one year before the crucifixion. Now, we don't find it in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, but we do find the reference made in John chapter 6 that it was the Passover service, and it is the first one that he does not go to Jerusalem. Matter of fact, the Gospel of John really helps us to set our time frame. The Passovers recorded in the Gospel of John help us to establish a timeline for the ministry of Jesus Christ. And I believe that the one in chapter 5 is a Passover. Uh, The term Pascha is not utilized there, but it is called the Feast of the Jews. And uh, it was the dominant feast of the year. And when uh, the fact that it was not delineated by another name would leave us to wonder. True, it's not delineated by the name of Passover. So it's possible that it could be Pentecost, it could be Tabernacles, it could be any of the others that were available. But the fact that it was not named then leads us to wonder, well, you know, if it's not named, why would we have any reason to believe it was the Feast of Booths? Why would we have any reason to believe it was the Feast of Tabernacles? The fact that it was not named actually lends itself to the Passover, the most dominant of all the feasts. Anyway, as we track them in John 2, John 5, John 6, John 12... 
we can uh, glean the uh, time frame of three and a half years for ministry as we uh, examine the four different Passovers. So um, that helps us to establish it. In fact, if all we had was the synoptic Gospels, we wouldn't have any reason to believe that the ministry of Jesus Christ was uh, even two years long. It, it could have been just a little bit over a year when it comes down to it. So the Gospel of John helps us in that regard. This marks the first Passover that Jesus failed to appear in Jerusalem. Um, interesting. It was noteworthy. In fact, when they were looking around for him, is he going to be here? Is he not going to be here? We examine the nature of that. The following, It's coming up in the following fall when he goes secretly, as it were, to uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. That's John chapter 7, the next chapter in John's record. In the fall, there would be much speculation that Jesus will skip the Feast of Tabernacles as well, even as he does here in John chapter 6, where he skips the Passover. Secondly, the report of John the Baptist's death prompted the Lord to withdraw into seclusion. Withdrawing into seclusion, and that's the vocabulary in in, uh, Matthew 14, verse 13. When Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. Seclusion only lasts so long as the people uh, takes the, uh, the time taken for the people to actually follow you. And then seclusion ends. Uh, seclusion ends when the crowds follow and then you have a choice. You stay with there, you minister to them or you go into further seclusion. You you uh, withdraw a second time and you have to make that choice with each particular withdrawal. Uh, am I going to stay withdrawn if indeed the people follow after because you have to make the choice this is now a ministry opportunity the father has allowed for it to happen what do i do and we see what the lord does we see what he does here now uh, john of course his ministry had ended Uh, he had accomplished the father's purpose for his life and he remained faithful until death and that's what we studied with salome and her dancing and the things there with herod Uh, His final work assignment was what it was, and he accomplished it, and the Father called him home. But now that sparks our thinking. We ought to, obviously, when we attend a funeral or when somebody dies or when when we're faced with the mortality of of our life, we ought to use it uh, as a witnessing opportunity to proclaim the gospel to family and friends, those who don't know Christ. But then beyond that, we should use it as an evaluation to consider, are we prepared for that day are we running our course with endurance are we going to be faithful until death if he calls us home tomorrow are we prepared have we done all that the lord has for us to do and so i think this time of reflection was what it was and in the in the light of john's death it uh, became a huge test then for christ to evaluate his own faith his own obedience his own willingness to uh follow through with what the father had for him and we've seen this already we will see more of it this will accelerate in the coming year in the coming year between now and the cross as the lord will withdraw as he will pray as he will wrestle and we get a glimpse into his mindset because uh, scripture records what he's thinking he debates shall i you know shall this cup pass me by what shall i say father shall shall you take this cup from me and then he says no That's not your will. And he immediately says, not my will, but thine be done. But the idea that he's tossing it around in his mind, the idea that he considers it as a possibility, shows us that from the humanity standpoint, don't don't confuse 
humanity with deity now. But from the humanity standpoint of Jesus Christ, he was really wrestling with this temptation. He even told his disciples, pray that you enter not into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Knowing that humanity is the weak link in this whole plan of God as far as uh, the, the weaknesses of humanity for what they are. Even sinless humanity has a vulnerability. So this is the context here, why he had withdrawn and why he was in prayer. Thirdly, and this is where we ended, uh, the return of his apostles presented additional opportunities for their training. And this becomes a testing opportunity for them. And we read about it. I like the John account where he was testing them. He knows what he was going to do. John 6, 6, uh, you know, he tells Philip, he says, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? And this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. And so it becomes a testing opportunity, a training opportunity. As we uh, train men for the ministry, it's not just about giving them the academic skills. They've got to have the Greek. They've got to have the Hebrew. They've got to have the systematic theology. They've got to be grounded in their doctrine so that they're prepared to handle the ministry of the word. But they also have to handle the ministry of the flock, which means they have to deal with people. And uh, in testing disciples and preparing them for their ministry, we uh, will often uh, examine what their uh, hypotheticals are. What would you do? Here's a circumstance. What are you going to do? How do you react? And uh, here the disciples are having that as a uh, as a test. They had to give an account for their ministry. And not only did we have these scriptures, but you remember we added Hebrews 13:17 to the scriptures that you see on the screen. They had to give an account for their ministry. Luke 9:10, we compare it to Romans 14:12, 1 Peter 3:15, 1 Peter 4:5, as well as Hebrews 13:17. It's not on the screen, but you want to jot that down. Yes, there is authority associated with the ministry, and those that are in the ministry have that authority. It's a responsibility that is upon them. And associated with that responsibility is the accountability that they have to answer to the one who entrusted them with that work assignment. And so they're giving an account. In Luke 9.10, they're giving an account. Any time that uh, a man that I'm training or another man, men that I'm not training uh, from uh, Warren Dow to Glenn Carnegie, men that will teach in this pulpit, uh, they teach with my permission and uh, and they're accountable. See, if if uh, something is taught that is not quite right or not quite in accordance with my view on the scriptures, I talk to these men and we find out, is this what you were really trying to say? And then, you know, they say, oh, well, actually, no, I misspoke. I said that wrong. I don't believe that. I'm like, okay, I want to make sure. And then uh, they have the opportunity the next time to remedy something that was misspoken and so forth. Well, they're giving an account. Luke 9:10. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. And we have to recognize that we are accountable. Each one of us is accountable. Every believer in the flock is accountable because every believer is a part of the body and they have a part to play. Romans 14:12. each one of us will give an account of ourselves to God at the judgment seat of Christ. But if we have it in our thinking, then that's the first time that we'll ever give an account. We're... Uh, we're deluding ourselves. We, we are constantly giving accounts of ourselves. Day by day, we're giving accounts of ourselves. If uh, nothing else, confession of sin is an account of ourselves. Uh, hopefully, we can have positive accounts beyond the confession process. We should have a daily prayer life where we present ourselves as workmen needing not to be ashamed. 
That's a present, ongoing, in-time, current presentation. Right now, rightly dividing the word of truth. So the accounting that we do is, uh, is an interesting doctrine and one that we maybe ought to pursue to greater depth. They also needed their own seclusion, rest, and food. And we read this in Mark chapter 6. They also needed their own seclusion, rest, and food. Mark chapter 6, and we read it in verses 30 through 32. The apostles gathered together with Jesus. See, he was going into a secluded place, and they were joining him in that secluded place. We would call this a retreat in modern vocabulary. And they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. See, here's the good shepherd who provides rest. He leads them beside still waters. He makes them to lie down in green pastures. And here he's doing this with these men that that he's training. For there were many people coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. And you realize that, you know, a busy Sunday's gone by and you, you've, uh, you've been in the building since 8 a.m. and you don't get home till 10 p.m. And you realize that uh, uh, you forgot to call your, your mother for her weekly phone call and other things that take place. And uh, whatever else takes place. All right. They needed their own seclusion, rest and food. And they need to learn this principle. They needed to learn the 24-hour, the 24-7 nature of their ministry. And for this, we go back to John 6. So you go into seclusion and you get your rest. And then it comes to an end because ministry follows you. So what do you do? You grumble. You stomp your feet. You yell at people. And you say, don't you know I'm in seclusion? What are you following me for? (laughs) See... How long does this last? You say, well, I'm on coffee break. Well, that's long enough. Say, get back to work. You take your rest when you can, as you can. And then when the father puts you back to work, there you go. And um, again, it's it's 24-7. He's testing them. Uh, He knows what he was intending to do in John 6-6. He knows what he's intending to do. And he knows that this is the time to do it. He might be tempted to uh, to say, you know, we're here in seclusion. The crowds followed. Let's go somewhere else to seclusion. If they follow, let's go somewhere else. If they follow, let's just keep running, right, until they stop following. Well, maybe that's not the work assignment. Why did they follow? Why are they here instead of in Jerusalem? Because, remember, they're also making the choice not to go to the Passover feast, the, which, which was a requirement under the law. That pilgrimage was expected three times every year. But these were people who made the decision to disobey that legal expectation, the requirement of the law, to follow after Jesus Christ. Now, were they right in that? Were they wrong in that? Did they have to confess that when they were done? Or did they have a perspective and maturity to say something greater than the law is here? And they went after the Christ. See, I don't know that I have the answer on that. I don't know that that they were right for following him or wrong for following him. Just things to think about. The seclusion did not last long as crowds from the cities followed them. Here we'll pick up new ground. The seclusion did not last long as crowds from the cities followed them. And I think that in the ministry you have to make that decision. Say, okay, rest time's over. (laughs) R&R is over. Let's get back to work. See, 
Um, you have to make that decision. I think that planning the time away is smart. I think that uh, intentionally uh, 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 taking those seasons and taking those times to do that is appropriate. But then, what do you, you know, if, if ministry follows you, what do you say? You know, call me back next week when my vacation's over. See, what do you say? Because this is the moment. The person's in the hospital now or the uh, intensive care unit now or something else is happening now. What do you do? The crowds follow them. They follow the lamb to his secluded place rather than taking their Passover lambs to Jerusalem. And I think that's a pattern. I believe that's a pattern. They followed the lamb to his secluded place rather than taking their Passover lambs to Jerusalem. They realized that they could have followed the ritual like they'd done year after year after year after year. But here was a unique opportunity, a once in a lifetime opportunity, we might think, to participate in reality rather than ritual to take advantage of an opportunity because here he is how how often would he come to this secluded area how often would he come to this shore last time he came to this shore he healed the demoniac and then the 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 gentiles around there didn't didn't want him to stick around they said go back to the western shore you know we don't want you on this shore well now he's on this shore again and you, you have to wonder how much of this positive volition is the result of the fact that the evangelist formerly known as a legion has been sharing that news and, and how much has that word spread between Jews and Gentiles alike on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. We have no way to know. Some of these that followed him followed him from the western side, we're told. that uh, Some of them tried to uh, follow in boats. Some of them followed on land. They followed on land as he, uh, you know, they went around as he went across and that kind of thing. We don't. Want, we have more questions and answers with respect to this, but this uh, you cannot deny that they followed the lamb rather than taking their Passover lambs, lowercase, to Jerusalem. There was one lamb that they were following. Also, they brought nothing for themselves and received what only he could provide. Why is it? How is it that five thousand men plus their wives plus their kids and nobody brought food? Nobody brought food. There's only one little kid here that's got anything. He's got uh, some barley loaves and some fish. And that one little kid, we don't even know his name. Uh, Christ and the disciples didn't bring anything with him. They didn't pack anything with him. They evidently, you know, they were just going to hit Taco Cabana on the way, you know, after after Bible class was over. They were going to hit the drive-thru. And 5,000 men and their wives and their children, no one brought anything. Which has me wondering, they, how long do they expect him to teach? <laughs> how far do they think he was going to go? You know, if, if they thought he was only going to go a little distance, well, then why bother packing a meal? Let's just follow. And he's only going to teach an hour. Why? You know, no big deal. Let's just follow. We'll go to Bible class. We'll go home. Didn't know we were going to follow him all the way around the entire Sea of Galilee to the Gadarene region. Didn't know he was going to speak to the evening hours of darkness. I think the time frame caught them by surprise and maybe even caught the Lord by surprise. Another indication of positive volition. <laughs> Negative volition, classes don't last very long, right? Short class, we're done, see ya. 
and Christ and the disciples go back into seclusion. Positive volition, class can go for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. Missionaries will tell you that when you get overseas in uh, Nigeria or, or Ukraine or Philippines, these places I've gone, positive volition for hours and hours, and you have no idea the time just flew by. See, that's the, I'll share one story this morning. That's the event that took place uh, on a Friday night when I was in Kiev. I was invited into this home to teach a Bible class, and we got there around 6, if I remember right. And uh, we started teaching, and we, we were at a dining room table, and there were probably 20 people in the room, and we're teaching, and everyone was flipping into their Bibles and, and uh, asking questions, and we're going, and, and it just eager, eager faces and eager questions, and, and we're in this Bible study, and we're going, and we're going, and we're going, and we're going. Well, by the time I realized what time it was, it was like 9.30, it was fairly late. And I'd gone three and a half hours. And how do you, I mean, where does the time go? <laughs> and so I look at my watch. I mean, oh, my goodness. Now I'm horrified, absolutely horrified that I had gone way too long and that I had offended the host, the, the grandfather that had hosted the, the, the deal. And uh, so I, I stopped the, the teaching and I apologized to him. I said, I had no idea. I didn't know we'd gone this long. And and I apologize, and, and, and he looked at me, and he said, I didn't tell you to stop. <laughs> he says, you can keep going. We want you to keep going. We went, we went till midnight. It's just wild. Imagine that in a local church setting in any event. I think, undoubtedly, that the positive volition of what he was teaching allowed the class to go longer and longer than expected, they brought nothing for themselves, and they received what only he could provide. What a metaphor. What a, uh, I mean, isn't that the story of our salvation? <laughs> what do we bring to this, to this process? Nothing at all. It's everything that he's done. We receive what only he could provide. When his rest was cut short by additional demands of ministry, the Lord felt compassion for the needs of others, and he welcomed them. And I think this is the description we have in the synoptics. We have Splunk needs a my, that mouthful that Bob and Cliff were laughing at for some reason about a year ago. Splunk needs a my is the verb. Uh, we have it in Matthew and Mark. Um, and we're told in Luke that he welcomed them. It wasn't grudgingly. It wasn't grumbling. It wasn't, you know, you rebels, shall I strike this rock and provide more water for you kind of thing. It was a welcome. And the compassion was there in, in both Matthew and in Mark. When his rest was cut short, see, and he made that decision. He, he, had, he had gone for rest. He was teaching his disciples rest. And how much rest did they get? We don't know. But what we do know is my grace is sufficient. Whatever it was, it was sufficient because it was complete, because there was more work to be done. And another open door had presented itself. So in Matthew chapter 14. In verse 13 we're told when Jesus heard about John he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this they followed him on foot from the cities. So whatever uh, time elapsed between that we don't know. Couldn't have been that long but it was evidently long enough. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd. So his rest came on the boat. 
When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. So he felt compassion. That's Splunk needs am I. He's not, uh, he's not um, immature. He's not emotion-driven. But he does have an emotional response the capacity, emotions framed by doctrine, the capacity to legitimately care for the needs of others. Mark 6, 34. Again, verse 33, the people saw them going and many recognized them and ran there together on foot and all the cities uh, from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion. There's splunk needs am I again. Felt compassion for them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So he had compassion for the needs of others. And he welcomed them. Luke 9.11. Luke 9.11. The crowds were aware of this and followed him in welcoming them. There's the welcoming. The hospitality. It's a requirement of ministry that that uh, the office of overseer be hospitable. Welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of hearing, of uh, healing, healing. Point D, the crowds needed healing and teaching. The crowds, I should have broken this down into two points. Point D, the crowds needed healing and teaching. They needed healing and and teaching we've read the verses already matthew 14 14 luke 9 11 that was their need for healing they also needed teaching we've also read mark 6 34 and luke 9 11 they came because they observed the signs of his divine commission but they will lose that perspective after this event i should have broken that down into points d and e if you want to split that up into two go right ahead because I'm going to make that a point E in my own notes. And I'm going to break it up. Right here, I'm going to put an E. That's kind of cute. Isn't that cute? All right. The crowds needed healing and teaching. I think, uh, you know, there are physical realities, as the book of James says. And if you just say, oh, we're going to pray for you, what does that do? If they need food, if they need covering, if you don't provide the physical needs, those are legitimate when they are legitimate. And, uh, and it's not like they, they couldn't care less about the teaching. We have people that come through here, they don't want the teaching, they don't, they don't want to stick around for the teaching, they just want food, they want money, they want cash, whatever. And, uh, they, and they don't get very far with that approach. As we talk to them and we, we demonstrate that, that we have a, a care and a concern, we want to know who they are, we want to know what the prayer needs are. But if they come in and they're hungry for the teaching and they sit through the Bible class and then after the Bible class they make these other needs known, they, they, they get a whole lot further than people that don't even stick around for the Bible class. Let's look at their priorities in the Gospel of John. John chapter 6 They came because they observed the signs of his divine commission. Another reason why coming here rather than Jerusalem was um, made sense is because 
no one in Jerusalem had the evidence of the divine commission. John 6, 2, we're told a large crowd followed him because this is causative, not my opinion. Scripture records it because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Not that he was healing sick, but that he was performing the signs, the semeon, the testimony, the credentials. They saw the signs, they observed the credentials. Likewise, in verse 14. After he feeds them all and they gather up 12 baskets of leftovers. Um, verse 14, therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. A sign is not a miracle. A miracle is not a sign. Sometimes the words are used interchangeably. Uh, a miracle, in, if we think of a miracle in terms of an act of divine power, then that speaks of the, the, the power employed to get it done. But if we use Simeon, we're speaking of the sign, the testimony, the indicator. And it's like the sign. The sign is what it is. Uh, that sign over there says E-X-I-T. It means exit. What do you think that's a sign? What do you think that sign represents? I think it means that you can go out that door and, and, and get out of the building. All right. Uh, there's, there's other signs and they mean what they say. Typically, <laughs> I have seen some stupid signs and you wonder why is that there? Right. But a sign is what it is. It is a marker with a significance. So that these works of power, yes, they're works of power. Are they dunamis? Are they works of power? Yes, they're dunamis. They're works of power. Works of God's divine power that only God could do. But beyond being works of power, they are signs. They are messages with significance. Markers with significance. Sometimes a sign could be a warning sign. Sometimes it could be an, in, an informative sign. Sometimes it could be um, different, different functions for the signs. But they do give the credentials for the one accomplishing them. That's why in the New Testament, the temporary gifts were called signs. They were called the marks of a true apostle. They were the, the sign gifts that were associated with uh, the apostolic ministry of establishing local churches. Now, they're going to lose this perspective after this event. And sadly, it doesn't take long. If you glance down, uh, look at the very next verse in verse 15. They're convinced that he's the prophet, which is good. He is the prophet. Moses spoke of a coming prophet. We'll show you those scriptures here momentarily. But then they went beyond that. Verse 15, Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now it's time again. Let's make another withdrawal. This one becomes necessary because of their misguided zeal. You start to wonder the theology that underlies replacement theology or underlies the mentality, the post-millennial mentality or the all-millennial mentality or different false theologies that are out there that where Christians get convinced that we're going to bring in the kingdom ourselves through human effort. We're going to bring it in. It's not really new. It's not really unique to the church age. Because <laughs> here in the dispensation of Israel are Jewish believers. And there may have been some Gentiles in the crowd. But I think they were largely Jewish believers that uh, were going to make him king. Is, are, is, are any people going to make him king? No, God the Father is going to seat him on David's throne, but only in the Father's timetable. So some zeal 
causes a loss of perspective. And, uh, and then later on, when they want him the next day, when, he, when they're hungry again, they want him to do that bread miracle again. Uh, Jesus, in verse 26, answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And so they've lost the perspective by this point. They've lost the perspective, the significance for what the signs were indicating, and they focus their attention back on the work of power, back on the physical effect that it could do for them. It could fill their belly. And uh, we'll, we'll deal with that episode when we get to the, uh, the bread of heaven message where Jesus says, I am the, uh, the bread of heaven. That comes up in episode 39. So that'll come up here shortly in three more episodes. He's got to walk on water still. He has to heal at Gennesaret, and then he will do the bread of heaven message in episode 39. So that's coming up. Point five. When evening came, the disciples wanted the crowds to fend for themselves. This was their attitude. Every man for himself. When evening came, the disciples wanted the crowds to fend for themselves. Particularly, I mean, we don't know what the total crowd was. We know the number 5,000 strictly applied only to the men, males, that uh, there were women and children beyond that. You can imagine and I don't know how many of the disciples were married, how many were single. John, I'm sure, was still single, just a, a kid, really. Uh, we know Peter was married. We don't know about any children he might have had. Uh, the Lord, of course, was single, no kids. Um, <laughs> probably most of these disciples were bachelors. They were single men, fishermen, and whatever. And, and uh, the idea of this massive crowd and trying to feed everybody was, uh, was a bit overwhelming, and they, they didn't have the funds to, to do it. So we'll look at this. Verse 15 in Matthew 14, uh, verses 35 and 36 in Mark 6, Luke 9 and verse 12. All of them are in agreement with each other that as far as the disciples were concerned, let's just dismiss them. Get rid of them. Make them go wherever they want to go. They can fend for themselves. You know, they can go into the villages. They can try to buy food there or, or they can return to their homes or whatever. It's none of our business. Why should we care? Why should we care? Now, this attitude is quite interesting because the disciples had just uh, completed a training arrangement, a training assignment, where as workers, they were worthy of their hire and took no bread for themselves. This episode immediately follows that, where they were returning from that. And so the, the mental attitude that they have of, well, let them go fend for themselves, they didn't bring any bread, is kind of interesting. Because they had just finished a work assignment themselves where they went out without bread. They went out expecting support. And here they are returning now back to the Lord. They still don't have any bread. Don't know what uh, they expected the Lord was going to do when they got there. But they kind of, I guess they were hoping that he'd buy them dinner. <laughs> right? You know, Lord, we're reporting back to you. We've completed our ministries and, and, uh, and we're giving an account. And just like you told us, we took no bread. And so here we are. We have no bread. And neither do these 5,000. They don't have bread either, but send them away. <laughs> so send them away so you can feed us. 
if uh, you want to glance back to these other ones, um, Matthew 10.10. 10, and I believe we discussed this when we uh, discussed the training of the, of the 12, the sending out of the 12. He says, do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals. Or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. And so they weren't charging for their messages. They weren't charging for anything that they did. Freely you have received, freely you give. They healed the sick. They raised the dead. Theoretically, we don't know that they did that, but they had that kind of power. They had that kind of uh, ministry. Mark 6, 8. He instructed them they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt. So they had no bread. Luke 9, 3. He said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. See, and so they were expected to be supported. So here they are, they're, they're showing up, they're reporting, they're giving an account. They have no money. They've not been collecting money. They have no bread. Neither do these 5,000 and their wives and kids. And so they want them to go away. So point B. In this episode, they will learn that providing earthly food is entirely appropriate after the provision of spiritual food. In this episode, they will learn that providing earthly food is entirely appropriate. Nothing wrong with this. After the provision of spiritual food. You know, I know some hardcore doctrinal churches that uh, would not have approved of our Sunday potluck. Right? Right? Maybe you've not been exposed to them, but, uh, you know, their approach is everything is doctrine, 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 intake, intake, intake. And the idea of a potluck is fluff. It's programs, it's entertainment, it's, uh, there's no place for that in, in certain uh, pastors thinking. That it all has to be on doctrine, only doctrine, and nothing but the doctrine. Say. I, I enjoyed Sunday afternoon. <laughs> you know, we ate well. It was enjoyable. It was tasty. And uh, and, and beyond that, we got to sit with uh, some of our new families, uh, some of the new visitors. You know, when I sat down, I thought they were still visitors. And uh, through the course of conversing, I found out they don't consider themselves visitors anymore. They're asking about membership and they're, they want to learn more about uh, different groups and things like that. And, and there you have it. Is this somehow wrong? Beyond the references that we have here, I think James 2, I made mention of a moment ago. James 2, 15 and 16. See, and this is, in my philosophy, in my way of thinking, I'm calling this doctrine plus. You know, we don't sacrifice the teaching for anything else. We don't compromise the teaching. We don't, we don't sacrifice that. We still make sure that teaching is the pinnacle of this ministry, that we have you know, 230 or more teaching, uh, teaching opportunities in any given calendar year. We're not exactly uh, plunging into, into uh, light and fluffy if we have four potlucks or if we have uh, half a dozen missionary reports in the course of a year or uh, a couple of uh, uh, 
quartet performances and whatnot, we're still delivering 230 teaching sessions a year, and my conscience is perfectly fine with that. <laughs> and if I'm wrong, Christ will have to show me where, uh, where I'm, I'm caving or, or compromising. But if it's doctrine plus, if, if groups want to do things after Bible class, if, if they want to do things or have additional fellowship times or things like that beyond, well, what's wrong with that? You know, we can have a prayer meeting and then we can uh, do something about meeting the needs. This is the application here that James was emphasizing. Verse 14 of James 2. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. And so it, it is appropriate. If there's a food need, and, this, and that's the illustration here, there's a food need. And it's a huge food need. 5,000 men, women and children, could be up to 20,000 people total. And yet, uh, as far as the disciples were concerned, send them away. Let them fend for themselves. Let them fend for themselves. And Christ says, well, wait a minute. We could do that, or we could meet the need. Say, is there anything wrong with meeting the need? Is there anything unbiblical about it? But see, they're trapped in thinking that it's up to them or it's something it's it's uh, it's going to be something that they can afford. You know, we can't afford it. You know, if 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 we had all the money, we had all this bread and if we could afford it, uh, then it would really be no big deal. Then sure, I'd be glad to feed 20,000 for dinner. But because um, we can't afford it, because we don't have the denarii, denarius, denarii necessary to feed all these guys. Now it's too bad. Send them away. We can't afford it. And Christ is going to teach him, you know what? It's not about what we can afford. He's going to do the miracle here beyond what uh, human ability can provide. The crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children would have cost 200 denarii for the meal. 200 denarii. You imagine about nine months wages for a worker. You know, whatever the, we can look it up, whatever the average income is in Austin. Find out what the uh, the mean Difference between average and mean, but find out what the uh, find out what the mean average is in uh, in the Crestview neighborhood, and then uh, you know on a monthly basis or an annual basis, and then extrapolate what uh, what nine months would would be, and then you get your equivalent, nine months worth of uh, worth of income. That's a lot of money to spend on a single meal. <laughs> you know, I couldn't imagine. What that is, we can Google it after class. Well, I won't take the time now, but, you know, just figure it out or you know, forget what the average is. Just go with what yours is. Go with your annual income and take about three quarters of that and, uh, and, and blow three quarters of your annual gross on a, on a single meal, on a single meal. <laughs> That's a big meal. All right. That's a lot of guests, a lot of invited guests. You, know, you kind of wonder why, uh, I mean, I don't wonder why the disciples don't want to spend that kind of money. The disciples could only think in earthly terms of what they could afford. The disciples could think, only think, in earthly terms of what they could afford.
It's a trap. It's a trap. And for church-age believers, it's a trap. And we've got to get out of that trap. Because it's not about what we can afford. It's about what he provides. Always has been, always will be. Look at the synoptics again. Actually, two synoptics in John. Mark, start with Mark 6.37. Again, it's reference to money or reference to what could be afforded. He answered, uh, verse 35 of Mark 6, when it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. <laughs> kind of a shock was that, you know, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread to give them something to eat? You know, it's interesting. They had that number just, just like that. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? We'll get into this here in a minute. Uh, Luke 9, 13. He says, you give them something to eat. I like that. Now the day was ending and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away. Send the crowd away. Look at him bossing Jesus around. Right? That's an imperative verb. Send them all away. Do we do that in our prayer life? Are we telling God what to do? Because we're convinced of what his will for us is. And so we start barking orders at him. Send the crowd away that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For here we are in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. Now let's just stop with that. You give them something to eat. You feed them. If God has assigned that responsibility, he expects you to do it. And is he limited by what you have or don't have? No. He told you to do it. He'll make the provision to get it done. You give them something to eat. See, we're having these debates right now about parking lot and about bathrooms and classrooms and, and auditorium seating and and what are we going to do how do we pack all these people in and we got a neighbor who wants to beat us up for parking in front of his house all right <laughs> so what are we going to do and the lord sends people and says you give them something to eat right we're going to teach them we can't say oh sorry go visit another church we're we're not taking visitors at this time you know, it's not like a doctor's office where you call him up and he says, no, we're not taking any new patients at this time. Go somewhere else. Can you imagine a church saying, no, no, sorry, we're full. Lord's bringing them to us. He's got a plan. You give them something to eat. And so what do we then react with? We say, well, Lord, we can't afford this. 200 denarii wouldn't be enough. See, saying, well, Lord, you know, if we sold our three lots in the building and property and we made a certain amount of money, uh, you know, that wouldn't be enough to build a new church building anywhere. You know, this side of Thorndale. OK. Is it about what we can afford? Never is. Ever. All right. We stay faithful with what he provides. And we watch him provide even more. So the rest of this verse then, 
in Luke 9:13, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. And uh, the finances involved. We've got to buy it. We've got to buy it. What can we solve with our money? What can we solve? And it's a terrible flaw to fall into, whether you have a little bit of money or some money or a whole lot of money. The trap itself is what can we solve with our money? How do we resolve this test with the money we have? Rather than how do we obey the Lord's command and how do we seek his provision for what he wants done? John 6, 7, uh, he himself knew what he intended to do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. Not only did Philip give the estimate of 200, but he even recognized that that wouldn't be a full meal. That's just bringing these people into the restaurant. Everybody just gets an appetizer and, and water. You know, they don't get the full meal with appetizer, meal, dessert, and all the rest. This is just a small amount. Everyone can receive a little. We can feed this crowd with uh, 200 denarii. Christ point B, Christ illustrated that the Father is not limited to what we can afford. The Father is not limited to what we can afford. And this is the illustration. Why do you think there were 12 baskets left over? Every one of these disciples was going to carry the evidence there were 12 apostles. There were 12 baskets left over. There weren't 5,000 baskets left over. He wasn't teaching the 5,000 anything. He was teaching the 12. And there were 12 baskets left over. And these 12 walked out of here carrying bread. They walked in not having any bread. They fed 5,000 and they walked out carrying more bread. The leftover pieces. The Lord is teaching them that the Father is not limited to what we can afford. Think about it. <laughs> How limiting is that? An unbeliever can take that approach. And they often do. Instead, you realize here's an opportunity. The Lord is increasing. He's filled the cup. What's the next step? Get a bigger cup. Fill it again. Capacity. Increase the capacity. Decide what the Father is going to provide and be faithful with what he does provide. Our resources are insufficient, but it is our resources that the Father makes use of. Our resources are insufficient. I want you to notice that. I think I got this from McGee. So if you find this in, in some reading, you'll know that I, did, I, I, I stole it. <laughs> I will confess my stealing here and now. I think it was from McGee. Our resources are insufficient. It might have been Sproul. R.C. Sproul. No, I think it was McGee. Our resources are insufficient, but it is our resources that the Father makes use of. In other words, he didn't command stones to become bread. He took the bread that this boy had, as meager as it was, you know, the as far as these resources here go we will make use of them the father will make use of them but he will also multiply them they are insufficient of course they're insufficient yet the father will use it 
Think of uh, your own ministry. Think of your own gift. Think of your own abilities. They're entirely insufficient, but the Father uses them. He provides you a spiritual gift. He uses you. He uses your preparation, your training, your background. He uses you as a tool. It's insufficient, but he uses it. And he causes it to be more than sufficient. That's the amazing thing. And only a perfect God could do that. Could use imperfect tools and still bring about perfect results. The lad that Andrew brings forward has barley loaves. Not only are they just any old loaves of bread, they're the barley loaves, they're the cheapest loaves, the food for the poor. Pidarion is the Greek, it's a diminutive of Pidios and Pidion. Pidarion, diminutive form, he's a little boy, he's a lad. And it's interesting because it's the same exact term, it's not a very common term, but it's the same exact term that Septuagint uses in Second Kings chapter 4. And, and the two stories are so coincidal, you wonder that, uh, of course, the first was a type of the second. And you wonder, let me get back to Second Kings chapter 4, and you, you have to say, how did the disciples have such little faith when obviously a prophet greater than um, Elisha is here? Second Kings 4. There's so many things that happen here um, throughout this chapter, but I guess I'll just stop here. In the early part of the chapter, in verses uh, 1 through 7, uh, the maidservant just has a little jar of oil, and uh, he has her go and borrow vessels from all her neighbors, not a few, and... um, so she does that, and um, she goes to her neighbor. She gets these vessels. She brings them in her house, and, and then she pours from her one into the others, and she fills them all. See, this is another multiplication miracle, like multiplying the loaves and fishes and having 12 baskets left over. Now, here she has a little jar of oil, and she takes this jar of oil, and, and how many of these larger vessels did she fill? I don't think we're given a number. Um, he says in verse 3, Go borrow vessels at large from all your neighbors, even empty vessels. Do not get a few, and you shall go in and shut the door behind you and all your sons and pour into all these vessels, and you shall set aside what is full. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons, and they were bringing the vessels to her, and she poured. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not one vessel more. And the oil stopped. And she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debt. And your sons can live on the rest. So that was her stock investment that she was able to live on. And we're not told the number there. Stop to consider that. What, you know, how many more could she have filled? Well, she reached the maximum capacity because she, she used every vessel available. We make you, the Lord, the Father, makes use of the resources. We want to make sure we're using every resource available and then watch what he provides. Say, Father, we're using every resource available. We've done what we can. We've maximized our use. We've, we've occupied the parsonage. We've turned that into Sunday school. We've expanded over there. We've, we've uh, added uh, more capacity in the ladies' room. We've done everything. We've used every vessel possible, and you filled them. Now what are you going to do? 
Well, he says, go and sell the oil, pay the debt. You and your sons can live on the rest that you can take this provision, invest it, sell it and uh, make use of it. Anyway, same chapter. That's earlier in the chapter, multiplying the oil later in the chapter. Um, verse 38, when Elisha returned to Gilgal, there was a famine in the land as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him. He said to his servant, put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. These, uh, these were students. These, uh, this was a training ministry. Interesting thing to consider as we get our own training ministry up and running. Then one went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered it from, the, from his uh, lap full of wild gourds and came and sliced them into the pot of stew for they did not know what they were. Again, they're making use of what they have available. But he doesn't realize that this one here is poison. So they poured it out for the men to eat. And as they were eating of the stew, they cried out and said, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they were unable to eat. But he said, Now bring meal. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour it out for the people that they may eat. And then there was no harm in the pot. Now a man came from Baal Shalashah and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in a sack. And he said, Give them to the people that they may eat. And his attendant said, What? Will I set this before a hundred men? But he said, Give them to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them. Now the, the attendant, the young man there in verse 43, the attendant is the Pythorion. He's the young man. It's the same term that's employed uh, of the lad that Andrew brings forward in, uh, in John 6. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. So this miracle of multiplying the loaves, it's not the first time it's ever been done. Elisha did it. Elisha multiplied oil. He multiplied bread. He, he took uh, poison food and, and uh, cured the poison and, and uh, just a string of miracles there in, in 2 Kings chapter 4. And the disciples who should be grounded in the scriptures should have an awareness of that miracle and... Uh, should have that in their thinking when he says, you give them something to eat. Finally, and I know I'm, I'm over here, but the last point is point seven. The father's provision of bread in the wilderness reminded the crowds of Moses and the promised prophet that was to come. And so we will pick up on this. Maybe not next week, but when we get back into the bread of heaven message in John six, it really follows up on this really well. I mean, here's the Lord providing bread in the wilderness. Just like the manna that the Father provided for the nation of Israel. Uh, should, it reminded the crowds that Moses said another prophet's coming. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. And uh, you compare it to Psalm 132 and verse 15. The Father's provision of bread in the wilderness reminded the crowds of Moses and the promised prophet that was to come. And uh, they're all excited. Truly, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And they want to take up my force and make him king. So jot down these scriptures. Look them up. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19 and Psalm 132, verse 15. We may or may not follow up on that next week. Or we may move right on to walking on the water. It depends on what I'm convicted by between now and then. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for this study. And I pray that we would learn these lessons, Father, that we would learn in particular uh, as the crowds are gathering and we're wondering, uh, what are we going to do with all these people? But Father, you know because you provided them. 
We're going to obey the scriptures. We're going to give them something to eat. We're going to feed them. We're going to feed them doctrine. We're going to feed them teaching. Believers that are hungry for teaching, that are coming for the teaching. Father, um, well, there it is. <laughs> One who comes to me, we will in no wise cast out. Father, we will, uh, we will keep them and be faithful. Father, faithful with little, faithful with much, whatever you provide. Father, keep us faithful. Keep our eyes on our work assignment and keep us from getting fat-headed and full of ourselves as if somehow um, we're the ones that are bringing these things about. Father, it's not us. It's the glory of our Savior. And we thank you in his most precious name. Amen.